This is your morning juice. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 26, 2014, the day before Thanksgiving. I'm Matthew Norton here on your morning juice with Paula Caruso and no doubt about the lead this morning, Paula. Ferguson again, and now protests all over the country. Yeah, it seems like it picked up in a lot of other cities on uh, this second night. But at least in most places, it appears, at least from what I was seeing on CNN overnight, it seems that most of them, uh, like the one in Los Angeles and most of those protesters in New York City overnight, were peaceful. Peaceful, but I, I did see in a couple different cities, Atlanta being one, Nashville being another, that uh, people were taking to interstates and forming chains across interstates in efforts to stop traffic and stuff. And so I guess peaceful in a way, but it makes me think, why Why would you put yourself in danger in that way? Um, yeah. I wish that people would maintain some sense of common sense, I guess, and at least keep yourself safe yeah. if you're going to be demonstrating. Well, George Stephanopoulos of ABC News got the exclusive of the year, probably, um, uh, if not... For the decade here with Officer Darren Wilson, mm -hmm. he sat down with Darren Wilson yesterday and last night on World News, they aired a portion of it. And I think they're going to air more on Good Morning America, of course, this morning. But we have a little bit of this interview in which Darren Wilson says that he basically was forced to shoot Michael uh, Brown because of the way Brown was acting. And when I said I said, get back, or I'm going to shoot you. And then his response immediately, he grabbed the top of my gun. And when he grabbed me, he said, you're too much of a to shoot me. And while he's doing that, I can feel his hand trying to come over my hand and get inside the trigger guard and try and shoot me with my own gun. So I know you didn't get to see Darren Wilson's uh, video of him. You've just been able to read what he said. But it is interesting to finally now get to hear from Officer Darren Wilson. And you can kind of see why the grand jury may have may have. Uh, put some stock into what he said based on his demeanor and and his version of events. And you felt that your your feelings towards the story have changed since you since you saw the interview. I'll tell you, uh, yes, because of his demeanor, and also because I'm wondering if there was confusion from those people who were in the neighborhood and who were maybe too far away to see exactly what Michael Brown was doing with his hands, because according to Officer Wilson. Brown never raised his hands as if to surrender. What he did, according to Wilson, was raise a fist as if he was going to strike the officer again. And with his other hand, uh, I believe it was his left hand, he, according to the officer, went down into his waistband as, as if he were going to pull out a weapon. And uh, Wilson says that from 25, 30 feet away, um, after he had been shot once... Um, Brown begins charging, or at least Wilson thought he was charging at him, and began shooting again, fearing for his life. And it's also interesting that Officer Wilson says he actually did think before he pulled the gun again, before he pulled the trigger again, is this legal? And he told himself, yes, because this guy's trying to kill me. Yeah, and he said, um, I, I thought it was interesting, too, um, and this may have been, I may be confusing the two, this may have just been in the, the grand jury report or uh, and not in the interview, but the part where he said he thought about his mace and he couldn't reach his mace and he doesn't carry a taser, so it was kind of like, I guess, the only weapon he had in his reach when he felt he was being threatened. Well, and that's, 
That's Ferguson Police's problem. I can't believe that they—I didn't hear that, and and so I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't see that in the grand jury documents. But I'm glad you brought that up because that is—that's his— his superior's problem. There's no way an officer shouldn't have mace. And also, I thought it was extraordinary that way back over the summer on the first night of the protests, how some of the officers were firing live rounds when in many jurisdictions in South Carolina, for instance, where I worked for years, they use beanbag uh, rounds or, or shoot beanbags, which hurt a lot, but they aren't lethal. And that gets people to back up. And uh, in some cases, for instance, if you have, uh, I I was friends with a cop in Greenville, for instance, who uh, had a, a guy with a gun to his head or was at least threatening, kind of threatening officers and threatening himself. And my friend used the the shotgun with the beanbag, and that that got the gun away from the guy because he was so stunned in his hand or his arm when he when he was shot with mm-hmm. that beanbag that I, I don't understand why this stuff has been around for a decade or more. And in Ferguson, South Carolina, uh, <laughs> Ferguson, uh, Missouri, they don't have this technology for their officers. I mean, yes, technically it's a small town, but it's the greater St. Louis area, you know? Yeah, absolutely. He um, well, he did have the mace, but he said he couldn't reach it. It was out of his reach when they were in their struggle. So, um, and he didn't have he didn't have a taser. He doesn't carry a taser. A taser. So. Yeah, they should have a taser. I may have said mace, but they should have they should have a taser. Who doesn't have a taser these days? Yeah, I thought those I thought those were pretty common. So that was kind of interesting to hear. But it could be like the thing, you know, we've had stories down here where things have happened and we've asked asked for dash cam in some of these small towns around here and they've said our dash cam was broke like years ago. Oh. We don't have money to fix them or we heard recently from a small police department in our area that they don't even have dash cameras on all their cruisers. If you can imagine that in 2014, they don't have yeah dash cam on every police cruiser. I mean, it's it seems unfathomable. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, if we're to believe the officer's version of events, because on the other side in my mind are those utility workers who were just accidentally caught on video saying to the cop, why did you shoot him? He had his hands raised. So if we're to believe that both sides believe they're telling the truth, perhaps the utility workers thought they saw hands raised when to officer wilson it was a fist that was trying to hit him again i don't know i wasn't there and we may never know the whole truth but the associated press has gone through many if not all of the documents from the grand jury and here is the end of their story that they published last night that i thought was that kind of put it in perspective as far as the law and what the grand jurors were really focused on here's what the associated press writes Public attention to this killing has frequently focused on the fact that Brown was unarmed. But whether or not Brown had a weapon makes little difference under Missouri law. State law says officers can act with deadly force when they believe it's necessary to arrest a person who's committed a felony or who may, quote, endanger life or inflict serious physical injury. The AP goes on to say the jurors asked about this deadly force standard shortly before they began deliberating. One asked whether a person's hands could be considered a weapon and was told yes. Another asked whether Brown himself could be seen as being a weapon because of his quote-unquote size and demeanor. Prosecutor Kathleen Elizaday then interjected, quote, Those things that you are asking is, could a person reasonably believe that their life was threatened? She told them that's the crux of what you all have to talk about. 
and then they went into their deliberations, and we will probably never know unless one of the grand jurors is legally able to come forward at this point and do an interview. We may never know what the vote is, although the fact that a grand jury deliberated both Friday and Monday for two days in what is usually, as they say, you know, a prosecutor can get an indictment of a ham sandwich, I think there was probably a lot of discussion and maybe disagreement, and I doubt it was a unanimous decision in there, a tough call, no matter which way you come down, you know, because of the way the Missouri law is written. Yeah, absolutely. And with the way things have been going in Ferguson and in other cities, big cities across the country with the protests, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if nobody identified themselves um, or even even anonymously as a grand jury member. I mean, they have got to be scared, I would imagine, for their lives. Yes. I also thought it was interesting that the AP notes in going through some of the grand jury testimony that Quote, many of the eyewitnesses from the nearby buildings were older, had never been interviewed by the news media in the months since the shooting, and accused younger residents of circulating false stories about Brown having been shot while lying defenseless on the ground. So I think that kind of backs up Bob McCullough, the prosecutor last night, when he alleged that some witnesses were not telling the truth. And then, although when asked if he would prosecute some of them for perjury, he said, "Eh, well, um, maybe they thought they were telling the truth, but they just their their testimony didn't match up with the uh, physical evidence. And I wanted to mention one more thing um, about uh, about all of this when the uh, when the grand jury was basically having to decide whether the officer was able to consider Mr. Brown himself a weapon. Um, I thought George Stephanopoulos asked a very good question. Okay, so first shot goes off, and we know from Bob McCullough the other night that that first shot grazed the thumb of Mr. Brown. Okay, so Mr. Brown goes running, or at least away from the squad car at that point. The officer gets out of the squad car. So George Stephanopoulos says, why did you get out of your car at that point? Why not sit there and wait for backup and 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 just wait until you have more manpower, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. find him or something. And so Officer Wilson says that's not what he was trained for, that he had someone who's committed a felony at that point, that the neighborhood could have been in danger if he had lost track of where Michael Brown was running to. But then he says, after he got out of his squad car, uh, Michael Brown stops and doesn't run away from him anymore, but according to the officer, appears to run back toward him, back toward the officer, and that's when the fatal shots were fired. So it's so it makes me so sad for Michael Brown's family, obviously, because they feel like their boy was taken from them for no reason. And then you can also see the officer's standpoint, because just the way his voice was quivering and everything when he was going through the telling of the story, you really did feel that or at least his emotions seemed to indicate that he felt his life was in danger. Whether mm-hmm. whether an, a different officer would have felt differently, I don't know. But again, why why in Ferguson, Missouri, does one have to use that, or at least over the summer, had to use that lethal force rather than, as you mentioned, a, ta- a taser, or um, as as the Greenville PD has those those beanbag. Uh, I'm sorry, not Greenville PD. They may have them as well, but uh, my friend works for the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Um, so mm. I just I don't quite understand that because there are so many people with mental illness who don't 
who don't exactly understand what they're doing and they don't understand that an officer is going to shoot you if you like look like you're going to tackle him or something and that's why officers have tasers or beanbag right. shotguns or something like that you know it's i just don't get it right cuz it feels like we've learned this lesson before yeah and also okay so if they say they don't have the money for the beanbag shotguns or the tasers who gave them all this money from the terrorism funds uh, to get these armored cars and everything? You know, the uh, the police chiefs love to have a news conference whenever they get one of these armored cars or something, a Humvee or whatever from the federal government that the feds don't want anymore. But yet, and and this is a society thing. This may not be the this may not be the fault of the police chief in Ferguson. He may not have enough money to to properly equip his officers. But I think it says a lot about society when we're willing to give everybody, every little dinky police department in the country, one of these uh, up-armored Humvees, and looks like they've right. got machine guns, but they don't have tasers and things like that that could de-escalate a situation. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, how we've done so many stories about public agencies and the the money they get or the different, you know, materials they get to do whatever job they need to do in their public agency. And when they're getting that stuff or they're getting that grant money or they're getting those tools to do their job, there's so many specifications on what they can spend that grant money on or what they can use those tools for or what tools they can even buy to do their job that it almost seems like like you were saying like we can give you this huge armored vehicle but we can't give you these what you, need. Uh, you know yeah non-fatal weapons to to help you know do your job or there's not a grant out there for that we're going to give you money for this but not that I saw I think it was CNN uh, a tweet or something I saw last night with a, a map of the United States where all of the Ferguson protests were happening, and it looked like there was one going on in Columbia, the state capital of South Carolina. Do you know if that's accurate? Uh, yeah, I believe people were around the state house uh, last night, a small, peaceful, uh, not many people gathering, but yeah. definitely in the evening hours there were some people uh, I'm not even sure they were marching. I think they were just kind of gathering at the, the state house here in South Carolina. And then today um, they had something, uh, it may, uh, yesterday I mean, um, they had something at the USC, the University of South Carolina, which is also in Columbia. The students had, had a march there as well. In New York City last night, on the way, as, as, as workers from Manhattan were trying to head home, uh, Ferguson, um, Michael Brown supporters, uh, actually shut down the Lincoln Tunnel for a while in FDR Drive. And in Atlanta, they shut down uh, the downtown connector, which I believe is I-7585, which, as you know, is clogged with traffic on a good day. And police moved in in Atlanta and arrested those protesters and eventually reopened that. But it's interesting how something that happens in the middle of the country is now spread out to all corners of the country, it appears. Well, we are so thankful here as we head towards Thanksgiving that Audible is now sponsoring your morning juice. And because you listen to your morning juice, you can get a free month of Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com slash 
your morning juice. That's audibletrial.com slash your morning juice. Some of the uh, some of the books that they have right now, Yes, Please by Amy Poehler. Seven hours and 31 minutes of entertainment from her. And as we were talking yesterday, she even brings in Carol Burnett, Kathleen Turner, Patrick Stewart, and Seth Myers to help her tell her story. So it's a very different experience from just reading her book. Tina Fey has narrated her own book, and so has Neil Patrick Harris and Mindy Kaling. So all kinds. Oh, and uh, Le- uh, Lena Dunham, if you like girls on HBO, Lena Dunham's book, Not That Kind of Girl, is also available on Audible. So you get a free month and one free download of these books, so an entire book for free on the in the audio version. Uh, just go to audibletrial.com slash yourmorningjuice. Please consider doing business with them. Mama's got to eat. Welcome back to Your Morning Juice. We've been talking about Ferguson. Now we want to move on to some other topics that are impacting a lot of people here this week, and that's the Thanksgiving nor'easter that could hit folks from, I guess you said, uh, Paula, D.C. on upward. Yeah, it's uh, it's supposed to be ugly today as people are traveling. I know we were telling people leave yesterday or leave tomorrow, but today is looking to be the day that if you're headed up to the northeastern part of the country, whether it's by car or by plane, it might be an ugly travel day. It's interesting that yesterday afternoon the airlines began uh, saying that they would not charge you any fees if you had to change your arrangements because they knew that it was going to be bad and there are specific uh, cities for which those apply. And I'm going to put a link this morning at uh, yourmorningjuice.com. But Delta was one of them. And I thought it was interesting that coming up on Sunday, so as everyone's trying to head back, that is Delta Airlines' biggest day of the year. Wow. Yeah, I never really thought of an like airline having a biggest day of the year, but I guess it makes sense because, you know, people can kind of pick Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before Thanksgiving Thursday to get to mom or grandma's house. But then pretty much everybody wants to head back on Sunday because you got to go to work on Monday. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, very interesting. I never thought about the the end of the weekend. I always thought Wednesday was the biggest travel day for some reason. Yeah, you would think that. Uh, and I think that I kind of feel like that language from AAA used to be kind of misleading because I feel like... Um, I feel like it has to be Sunday, even for people driving, you know, and maybe they just maybe I misunderstood. Maybe they just used to say that Thanksgiving, meaning the whole weekend, is the biggest travel period of the year. So, you know, they they may have been correct in how they stated it. Well, you know, in in the olden days, <laughs> we used to I'm sure it was the same for you, but we used to go to school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yes. And then you had. Thursday off. And so, and when I was in college, you still went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then of course, Wednesday was famously known as the biggest bar night of the year because everybody basically has Thursday off. So you really had to watch out for the drunk drivers on the roads at Wednesday night into Thanksgiving Thursday. But nowadays kids have the whole week off. It's weird. Um, Here, Yeah. yeah, the college has been off. The local university here in Myrtle Beach has been off all week. And the school children have, I believe they've been off all week too, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So uh, I guess that kind of changes people's travel habits when you have the whole week off of versus just the four-day weekend. You know what uh, is also odd to me? When, when we were kids, parents would never 
ever schedule a vacation after after the middle of August through the next end of May, because usually we got out at the end of May and had until the first couple of weeks of August to get in our vacations. And now I hear more and more parents, they schedule a vacation here or there and take their kids out of school for two or three days um, leading up to that weekend. Uh, of any weekend, not necessarily Thanksgiving I'm talking. I'm just talking about, hey, we want to go ski or something. And I Mm -hmm. remember one time a friend of mine in grade school, uh, I think his father and mother scheduled a trip to, um, to Epcot and Disney World. And it was a big deal, even for the teacher, for the student to, to get to go. You know, it was a big deal. And now it's just like, I don't know, did the schools just let them go? <laughs> I mean, I guess they they do. Yeah, I think uh, the culture is so different in the schools today than it was when we were young. I can remember going to um, Disney World when I was young and we were still in school. I was probably in first grade. But I had an older sister and brother uh, elsewhere in the elementary school and a younger brother. And we were celebrating. I think my mom had just finished nursing school. And so we were kind of taking a family trip to celebrate that before she started working. And I can remember my parents like going in and talking to the teachers before we had gone out of town. And basically not necessarily clearing it with them, but just letting them know that we were going to be gone for a week and to give, you know, give us the homework in advance if they had it. And if not, we'd be fit. We'd do it when we got back. And I remember since I was only in first grade, you're young and there really isn't much homework to make up. So I had to keep like a journal every day of like what we did and what I saw (laughs) and like add pictures and this, that, and the other thing. Um, But yeah, nowadays it's so common. And I think the big driver, we've covered it, um, down here, I know you probably did too when you lived here just because it's such a tourist area that people uh, who work in the tourist industry can't take those summer vacations here. So they're taking them in the fall or the early spring when it's good for them and their work schedule. And then when they're going places, they're getting nice discounts uh, and places to stay and things to yeah. do because they're going in the off season. And I think that's kind of catching on with, with more families. Yeah, I think so. And I I watched a um, really good documentary a few weeks ago, uh, weeks ago called Bully, and it really goes inside one school where a student has committed suicide after being bullied, and more students mm-hmm. throughout the documentary are bullied as well. And I was astounded at the way the school principal and assistant principals talk to kids these days because it is so diplomatic and it is so it's as if you're going instead of you know when you used to I don't know if I ever really got called to the principal's office but when kids got called to the principal's office it was a huge deal now you know Mm -hmm. according to this documentary they just showed the footage they didn't comment on it they just showed the footage of the kid the alleged bullier going in to see the assistant principal and it was like going to see HR everything was just (laughs) okay so you have you have really made Bobby feel bad uh, do you have a response to that? <laughs> okay, well, this can't happen again. You realize that? Okay, now, um, if this happens again, if you twist off his head again, I'm going to have to <laughs> make sure that you spend one hour of detention after school. Is that okay? You know, get get real people. You know, that's why there's this this bullying problem in the first place is because right. uh, school administrators are so bullied by lawsuits and everything that they're so afraid to 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 ream out a kid anymore you know yeah absolutely i have one of my friends who's a teacher she teaches 
um, middle school, sometimes high school, depending on where they place her for the year. But she said sometimes, even with grading kids, like the attacks from the parents are so terrible that she's like, if somebody's on the on the edge, I just bump them up to get them out of my class because I can't stand wow. hearing from the parents. Like she's like, they'll call you at all times of the day. She said they never call you when their child hasn't turned in homework. They never call you well when their child is supposed to be preparing for a test, the biggest test. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them, how many times you tell them the assignment is most of their grade or this huge book report. They're always calling you after everything's graded and the child is on the verge of flunking the class or they've flunked a test. And then she's like, they read you the riot act. Like you, you know. Yeah. And she's like, what am I supposed to do? Call the parent and tell them what the homework is? Your child is in high school or like late middle school. At this point, they have to act like an adult. Like, so it is, it's such a breakdown in our schools. And we have a culture now that doesn't value school anymore, education at all. And it's as if mm-hmm. if a kid is uh, the slightest bit intellectual, you know, what are you putting on airs? Like, what do you think you're better than me because you've read all these books and everything? And there's like an anti-intellectual strain in this country that I just don't understand. Who do they think created Google? Who do they think created Facebook that it just popped up in these people's minds, you know? Education goes a long way and used to you always wanted your kids to to get an education to have a better life than you. Now, I feel like some parents are feeling like, I don't know, like they don't want their kid to be better than them because that'll reflect badly on them and they'll be embarrassed that they can't hold a conversation with the kid or something. Mm-hmm. Or that they know better than than the school system can or the teachers can. And that's something that as a mom now and i feel like i do a lot of research before you know giving my daughter anything that you know maybe the doctor said she could have or this that or the other thing and when it always comes to education for me i always think as much as i would love to keep her with me and to teach her everything i know and i wouldn't have to fear sending her to school because that's a real fear for parents these days um I know that I don't have the ability to teach her what she needs to know because that's not my line of work. I haven't dedicated my life to learning those things. And she needs to go learn that from somebody whose life work that is to educate. And so specializes for me that, yeah, absolutely. On the, um, I know we're taking a serious track on this, but it reminded me of a funny story I have from growing up and how schools have changed and how things that we maybe dealt with and had when we were young would never go over in today's schools. Um, We had the secretary in the principal's office who on your birthday, if you went, this is my elementary school, if you went and brought her, you know, a cupcake or a cookie or an ice cream, whatever you brought in for your birthday, she would pull out, I now know as an adult, this was mimicked after Marilyn Monroe, but as a young child, you don't know this, but she <laughs> would take out her lipstick and her oh. little compact mirror, and she'd sing you happy birthday while putting on her lipstick, and then she'd kiss both of your cheeks and your forehead, and it was like a badge of honor to walk around the school <laughs> with the secretary's lipstick kisses on your face that day because everybody knew it was your birthday and everybody wow. knew you had gone to see the secretary with your treat. And so it was just such a special thing for the kids in the school for her to do this. And I think about it nowadays. Like, can you imagine no. if a secretary did that to children in an elementary school? <laughs> no, I don't think that would go over anymore. I think <laughs> <laughs> there's so 
<laughs> everyone is so, pardon the word, straight. You know what I'm saying? Like, everyone is so politically correct mm-hmm. that we have, we're losing a part of our culture, really, you know? And we're losing the fun. We're yeah. losing the, you know, it's through those bumpy edges that you kind of learn about life and people's differences. Before we go, I want to mention that a big announcement late last night that you may not have heard of from Dancing with the Stars. One of the uh, one of the big dancers from the original show, Cheryl Burke, is now leaving, and that her contract expires with Tuesday's finale, so this is the last time for her. Can you believe that they're going to be celebrating their 10th anniversary, Dancing with the Stars, next season? But Cheryl Burke will not wow. be a part of it. And Len Goodman, who was missing... <laughs> for much of this season, says that he's going to be back full-time next year. And Julianne Hoff has also gotten uh, the nod to be back for next year as well. The executive producer, I believe it was, had an interesting quote about her. She, uh, He says, A judging panel isn't about individuals. It's about chemistry. That has happened remarkably quickly for Julianne in that role. I couldn't be happier. And she does seem to have made that transition pretty easily. Yeah, absolutely. I think being part of the show and being a part of that culture there probably helped her um, you know, oh, yeah. transition to the to then hanging out with the people that she already knew. I'll miss Cheryl Burke, though. She was one of my favorites. Yeah, she was a spunky one, you know, and she wasn't afraid. Like some of them are kind of afraid to like give their opinion or or after the judges have ruled and they kind of go to that other area where they kind of give their opinion. Uh, some mm-hmm. of them are kind of afraid to speak out, but I feel like she would just tell it like it is. Yeah, she won. She won a bunch of times too, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. Uh, she and uh, Derek Huff and Mark Ballas seem to like always have good ones, but this year uh, she didn't. She had Antonio Sabato Jr., who you would think would be pretty good, but they were out pretty quickly. I think uh, the article from the Wrap said they were out in about week five or something. So. Uh, probably not the way she wanted to go out, but hopefully she has other entertainment jobs ahead of her. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully she goes on from here and does something still in the spotlight because I, I like her personality. As for you, um, I'm sure Lieutenant Grant will be training you for your role as a cook for Thanksgiving uh, today and that uh, he looks forward to the end of whenever your contract is at your station so that you can be home with baby and cook him a meal every night like a good Southern wife ought to be. (laughs) Now he knows who he married, so that's (laughs) not going to (laughs) happen. But I am going to start prepping. I've already made one dish and I'm going to start prepping a few other ones. So I'm going to do that thing where they say, you know, um, prepare things in advance so you're not doing it all the day of. Yes. I'm try that out. So you can enjoy your guests as if yes, any of absolutely. us enjoy our guests. <laughs> <laughs> you just count down the time till they leave, right? <laughs> <laughs> we will hear Paula Caruso's uh, menu tomorrow on the Thanksgiving edition. You'll have to wait and see because this is her first time preparing the whole thing by herself and the folks are coming over, the in-laws. Can you imagine this? Paula Caruso's <laughs> in-laws are coming over and they've got, talk about giving, telling it like it is, they've got opinions about how the food should be. And I'm wondering how Ms. Caruso is going to work in the oysters because she is at the beach, you know. you got to have something with oysters in it. So we'll hear that on the special Thanksgiving edition tomorrow. And, of course, we'll also be with you on Black Friday. We'll do the sign of the cross for you and everything. <laughs> 
All right. Hope you have a good day, and uh, hope, Paula, that you are able to get some of those dishes uh, prepared ahead of time. We can't wait to hear how it goes tomorrow uh, on the special Thanksgiving show. And thank you for listening as well to Your Morning Juice. Your Morning Juice is a production of Nob Hill Media. Stay up to date throughout the day at yourmorningjuice.com.